Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier, Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Columbia. Hello and welcome to Columbia Calling. I'm Emily Hart and this week we're discussing peace and statehood with two expert researchers, Dr. Gwen Bernier and Dr. Andre Gomez Suarez. Gwen is a junior research fellow in anthropology at the University of Oxford, with over a decade working on peace and politics in Colombia, as well as author of numerous books on the topic. Andre is a senior research fellow at the Centre of Religion, Reconciliation and Peace at the University of Winchester. He's co-founder of peacebuilding group Rodemos el Dialogo and is also author of numerous books. We're going to be talking about peace and peaceability, the Colombian government's attempts to communicate and convince around the referendum on the 2016 peace deal with the FARC, as well as the long shadow which the failings of that work has cast. Sharing their experiences, both in research and in advocacy, Gwen and Andre will be telling us about the faces that the Colombian government has shown and needs to show in front of its citizens, the failings of a purely rational approach and the conclusions of Gwen's new book, The Face of Peace, Government Pedagogy Amid Disinformation in Colombia. To round off the show, Gwen will be giving us a reading from the prologue. All of that to come, but first, your top news stories for this week. Colombia's Minister of the Interior went to the Senate on Tuesday to present a political reform bill, a key part of the new government agenda. The bill proposes to restrict private financing of electoral campaigns, which would be exclusively state-financed in attempts to limit corruption. The bill would also lower the minimum age from 30 to 25 for senators and from 25 to 18 for the House of Representatives. In addition, the bill proposes modifications to the list system, by which citizens cannot vote for specific candidates, only parties, as well as proposing that congressmen can change parties or even leave their posts to take roles in the executive branch or join government teams. Compulsory voting is also being debated, as are reductions to the salaries and holidays of congressmen. As the policy of total peace advances, Venezuelan President Nicolás Maduro has been announced as a guarantor of the negotiations with guerrilla group the ELN, planned to kick off in the near future. There are now 22 armed groups in Colombia that want to join the policy of total peace, according to think tank Indepaz. The government has already made contact with FARC dissidents and criminal group the Gulf Clan. Also this week, the government proposed incentives for young people leaving gangs. President Gustavo Petro announced he will allocate 1 billion pesos, earmarked for young people, to finish their studies and commit themselves to not re-offend. Meanwhile, the National Ombudsman's Office has published an official alert, warning of the presence of armed groups in capital Bogotá. 
FARC dissidences, ELN and Gulf Clan are present in the city, as well as numerous other criminal organisations. The Ombudsman also criticised the security efforts of the city's mayor. Petrol prices in Colombia will rise later this year. The measure will be taken as the government has been subsidising the cost of petrol for years, generating a large fiscal gap. These price rises will increase the cost of food and transport amid high inflation and a cost-of-living crisis. The government is, however, contemplating maintaining subsidies for taxi drivers, truck drivers and public transportation services in order to mitigate the effects on the cost of living and to avoid a strike. 58% of workers in Colombia are informal workers, according to the National Administrative Department of Statistics. Measuring between May and July of this year, the figure is nearly 1.7 percentage points lower than the same period in 2021. But cities like northern Cincelejo have up to 70% employed informally. And 57% of Colombians prefer material welfare to democracy, according to a new study by America's Barometer, in partnership with USAID and Vanderbilt University. In most Latin American and Caribbean countries, more than 50% of those asked prefer a system that guarantees material assistance over one that guarantees elections. Though, across the region, willingness to trade elections for material guarantees varies significantly. Ecuador and Jamaica measure around 65%, and the lowest is the US with 37%, followed by Uruguay and Argentina. Age is the most significant predictor. Younger adults are more likely to trade away elections for material guarantees. As promised, Transitional Justice Court, the HEP, has opened a new case to investigate war crimes against Colombia's indigenous and ethnic communities. Macro Case 9 will focus on territories where indigenous communities suffered violence, with a provisional figure of 1,350,000 victims. It is the first time that, at the national level, crimes against ethnic peoples and territories are being investigated, fully noting the massive differential impact of the conflict on those communities. The most documented crime in this case is forced displacement, followed by homicide and forced disappearance. The case will also look at how the military participated in the dispossession of territory in alliance with paramilitaries and third parties. The HEP recently also opened a macro case on military and paramilitary alliances. There are also cases on hostage-taking, so-called false positive murders, the genocide of members of leftist Union Patriotica Party, and three more on crimes committed in particular regions. The promised case on sexual violence and other crimes motivated by gender, sex, orientation and gender identity is still pending. And after a bout of acute bronchitis, President Gustavo Petro is now in New York, making his first address to the United Nations General Assembly. Those are your top stories for this week. Uh, so welcome on the show, guys. Thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here, and we great to be back on the show. Yeah, thanks for the invite. So we're here to talk about peace pedagogy, which is the uh, the subject of Gwen's new book, um, on which Andre is a, a collaborator and also the dedicate. I noticed dedicate. Is that a word? The person to whom the book is dedicated, at any rate. Um, so let's dive in. Peace pedagogy. What is it? Well, I think um, 
Emily, the important thing to contextualise the book, uh, which is called The Face of Peace, and the subtitle is Government Pedagogy Amid Disinformation in Colombia. The key um, kind of to contextualise the book is that I wrote it in the just sort of in the context of the peace process with the FARC. Um, and it's about the work that the Office of the High Commissioner for Peace did, um, in which is the government institution in charge of doing peace negotiations, but also in charge of explaining the peace process to Colombian society um, before and after the referendum in 2016, which narrowly rejected the peace accord by just 50.2%. Um, and it, there have been plebiscites on peace accords in the world before. Um, there was in Guatemala, in Northern Ireland, but um, there hasn't been, insofar as what I could find anyway, a substantive large-scale effort by a government to explain what a peace accord entails to society at such a wide-scale level um, as was demanded in Colombia. And essentially what peace pedagogy meant, and it, it's different from peace education, which is a field of peace studies that seeks to sort of describe the way in which uh, groups can teach people using pedagogical methods to solve conflicts more peacefully um, and, uh, and, you know, have sort of more of a, a peaceful coexistence. Um, peace pedagogy, the way that it emerged in a very sui generis way within the context of the Santos Park peace process, it meant to explain to different sects of society the context, uh, the um, uh, content of the peace agreement. Initially, advances in the agreement as they were reached, and then um, the full agreement when it was signed in 2016. Um, so as I said, this was a global innovation. This hadn't been done before. And the reason I got interested in it is because in 2016, just after the referendum, um, I had been working with Andre and with uh, many other collaborators and colleagues um, with an organization called Problemos de Dialogo. We had been doing peace pedagogy. We had been going around the country explaining to different groups of people what was in the peace accord, why it was important to vote, why it was important to understand what was in the peace accord before voting, um, and why it represented a sort of opportunity to change the country's future. Um, and then immediately after the referendum, I started my PhD and I immediately noticed that there was a very common criticism which began circulating in all of my Colombian WhatsApp groups, which was the government didn't do enough peace pedagogy. And this criticism uh, essentially the interpretation that people who took this view uh, was that the government hadn't done enough to counter the disinformation that was circulating, which I'm sure you and all of your um, listeners will be familiar with, the disinformation campaign that did uh, circulate um, not just during the referendum campaign, but the, all throughout the peace negotiations um, from uh, former President Alvaro Uribe and the Democratic Centre Party. Um, and so this interpretation blamed the government for not doing enough in that regard to counter this disinformation with truthful explanations. And I thought, well, this is an interesting criticism. Let's go and see what the government did actually do before the referendum in terms of peace pedagogy, in terms of traveling the country, explaining to people what, what was in the agreement and what they were going to do after the referendum, which was a really crucial period between 2016, when the, the, the agreement was renegotiated and signed and began to be implemented at the end of 2016, and 2018, when the elections took place, in which explaining the peace accord again remains a very divisive electoral issue, because essentially what a lot of people wanted to do, uh, like Andrea and myself and uh, the Office of the High Commissioner for Peace, was explain to people what was in the agreement so that they could 
essentially help help encourage people elect a government that was going to continue implementation of the agreement, which, as we know, they failed. And Ivan Duque was elected on a platform of promising to destroy the deal. Um, and we can discuss to what extent he managed or not to do that. But the 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 interesting thing was that I discovered that actually there had been a lot more peace pedagogy done than many people realized. But th there were several problems with it um, and several lessons learned along the way, which my book talks about. So the the thing that kind of struck me initially, the first thing, well, aside from the fact that it's the title, so obviously it's the first thing, it's about the faces of peace, this expression dar la cara, um, which is to, I mean, I'll leave it to you to translate it because I'm not sure there is a direct translation into English, uh, certainly not one I could come up with. Yeah, so I was very interested in the problem of what it meant to communicate about the peace accord from government specifically in a context in in Colombia where there is historic widespread distrust in the state for many reasons partly because of the state's actions in the conflict it's been a, an aggressor in many regions but it's also um, due to widespread narratives about the state abandoning or um, set sort of sections of the country or state absence and also because of corruption and the lack of state compliance and fulfillment of, of its promises. Um, and in this context of widespread distrust of the state, it's really difficult for a government to government officials to do peace pedagogy. And so I was working for 13 months in the Office of the High Commission of Peace as a researcher, as an observer, um, accompanying them on their trips around the country watching what they were doing and listening to them also in their daily meetings in Bogota in the office, um, helping them sort of look at their strategy documents and stuff. And one of the phrases they kept saying is how difficult it was to dar la cara to people um, about the peace agreement in a context in which also the peace agreement was a subject of increasing political dispute. And um, they were the ones who had to go and, I mean, saying things like, oh, um, uh, it's not our fault the peace process is falling apart, but we're the ones who have to go and dar la cara to people in the regions. And I thought that this phrase was a really interesting kind of way in to picking apart the difficulty of being the face of the government um, as an individual and what the experience of those people actually is and what their experience can tell us about the role of government society relations in a peace process and how important that relationship is. And um, so I, I borrowed, I translate dar la cara as giving face, which is a slightly odd translation, but I thought it was the most literal translation um, possible. And I kind of do a, I mean, I'm an anthropologist, so this is a kind of a theoretical construct of trying to analyze what it means to, through lots of individual acts of individual people who are going and dar la cara in different regions, through different settings, like peace pedagogy, um, plus the overarching kind of uh, national level actions of the kind of public persona, like the head of state, Juan Manuel Santos in this case, or Sergio Paramillo, the High Commissioner for Peace, the kind of combination of all of these different factors um, forges uh, the face of the government, the overall face of the government, which is a kind of imagined construct by which people perceive the government to have a kind of overarching character or personality. And what I argue is that Santos, in his throughout his eight years of his government, he tried to convey a face of peace. That was his overarching stamp. That was his, that was his brand, if you like. 
Um, and my overarching argument in the book is that he and his government um, spent a lot of time and effort in negotiating and poured in a lot of resources into the negotiations. Um, they drew on a lot of international expertise. It was a very sophisticated effort. They poured in a lot of money um, to doing the negotiations with the FARC and Havana, which is not easy, by the way. It's not easy to reach uh, an agreement with a guerrilla. And I think, you know, we, we tend to forget that also uh, when criticizing other aspects of the of, of the Santos administration and other aspects of the peace process, because, and we could look at, you know, how relevant that is today to understand the challenges that Gustavo Petro faces, for example, when negotiating with the ELN. It's not straightforward. It is a difficult challenge. So it is important to dedicate a lot of effort to that. But despite putting in all of these efforts into the negotiations, I, I argue that Santos's government failed to put in the same amount of effort to, if you like, negotiating with society or giving face to Colombian society, bringing Colombian society along with them and helping uh, build a government society alliance to uh, move peace forwards together. And that was, in a way, what led partly to the um, loss of the referendum and to the election of Ivan Duque um, after a failure to sufficiently mobilise the society around, around peace. So I use the, 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 the idea of the face and being the face and giving face and dar la cara and the face of peace. They're all a series of heuristics which allow me to play with um, the idea and the you know the, the experience that I observed of being the government, being the face of the government, um, in a context of extremely high stakes. You know, working for the government on such an important issue as a peace process um, at, with many challenges in in, in a very politicised, um, some might say polarising context. Um, so yes, that's that's what it's about. And it is really fascinating, and I would advise, recommend, and lightly suggest to all of our listeners that you do get hold of it. Gwen was kind enough to give me an advanced copy, and it is really, really fascinating read. Um, I think one of the questions I, I have about peace pedagogy in, in Colombia, particularly during that period, is how much it changed pre-accord and post-accord. What characterizes these two presumably very different phases of pedagogy around the agreement? Yeah, so I um, was able to see quite a bit of pedagogy pre-agreement, but not as part of the research initially. Um, in the work that Andrea and I was doing with Rodemo Fidialogo, we sometimes coincided with people from the Office of the High Commission of the Peace. Um, and, but so it was a kind of anecdotal um, knowledge. Um, but I then reconstructed the history of how peace pedagogy emerged uh, through extensive interviews with government officials and um, other people who've been relevant for this. Um, and I would say that prior to the referendum, there was very much a focus on technical, rational details and being extremely faithful to the technicalities of the accord which was necessary for many reasons. I mean, one of the things I do in this reconstruction is explain why these logics operated the way that they did. It's very easy to criticize post-facts, but um, we have to understand the logics in the context in which they emerged. And remember that this has never happened before in a peace process. So this was a, a first, um, a world first. So they were learning as they went along. And they, that's why I think they learned a lot of lessons along the way. But they were very much stuck to the technical details, partly because of the confidentiality principle that governed the negotiations that were uh, arguably necessary in order to be able to reach a deal, 
Um, and so that meant that they could only speak in public about sort of information that was publicly available. Secondly, um, it was a sort of culture within the Office of the High Commissioner for Peace, and I analyse this as a cultural liberalism, a, a kind of factor of liberal um, culture which privileges rationality over emotions and sees rationality and emotions as a kind of dichotomy. Um, and I think this was part of their cultural makeup, as it were, a priori, because of who they were. They were mostly very um, progressive, committed individuals um, from Colombia's elites, mostly from Bogota, mostly from the top universities in Bogota, some with studies abroad, mostly um, white. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so within that kind of top 5% of Colombian society, if you like. So they had also this kind of international outlook, very much in the Santos mold. Um, Santos himself, uh, you know, was a liberal, a liberal politician. Um, and I sort of analyze what they what I see as their cultural liberalism in that sense. Um, and so they were very, uh, they were very kind of connected emotionally, if you like, to rationality and to rational explaining, which is a, a very strong feature of liberalism. Uh, but they also retreated further into that position of rationality in response to what they saw as Uribe's populism. So there was a kind of cultural repudiation of um, everything that Uribe stood for. And so they they sort of, I think they treated the disinformation campaign and people who believed in the disinformation messages that were being put out with um, with condescension, thinking, oh, that's a sort of populist appeal. So in, in, in response to populism, we're going to, um, take the moral high ground. It's a bit like what Michelle Obama said in 2016 before the American elections uh, about Donald Trump's political bullying. She said, when they go low, we go high. And as we know, this kind of moral superiority just preceded the loss of the rest of the elections for the Democrats. So explaining to people um, why they should think the way they, they why they shouldn't think the way they, that they do uh, doesn't work um, in, in political terms. Um, and so that was, but that was very much how the pre-referendum pedagogy looked, um, at least according to the the interviews that I did. After the referendum, there was a lot of soul searching in the office of the high commissioner. Um, they were very self-critical, and one of their main self-criticisms was we were not emotional enough. They thought, ah, we lost because the other side were emotional, and they managed to speak to the emotions of of other of, of Colombian society. Uh, therefore, we needed to be more emotional. We were too rational. Um, and they tried to do a really interesting project, which Andre then uh, worked as consultant on. Um, uh, so it was quite interesting because <laughs> the field entered my own house um, in a way. Um, and uh, this this project was trying to engage with with Colombian society's emotions by building new narratives to mobilize them around the peace process by working with writers, artists, musicians, um, teachers, educators, and, uh, and, and, and media um, journalists and radio hosts and things like that. People who are already working on narratives of peace, as it were, um, trying to work with people from across the tertiary departments who had those sorts of jobs to craft new narratives using cultural production. 
And um, the end result after a year of this project was a really beautiful song called La Confianza, which maybe we can find on YouTube and um, include it in the podcast. Um, and But this song did not come out in time for it to influence the presidential elections um, for many reasons, partly due to the difficulties of working between government and society because of this distrust, partly because of the demands that the international donors who were funding the project put on, um, on the ways in which their money could be used, which created a lot of obstacles, which undermined the very, very incipient trust that was slowly being built. Um, and partly because uh, of uh, political um, contexts that, that got in the way as well. So it was it was a very up and down experience, but that was what they tried to do. I think it was a project that had a very beautiful objective. It had lots of problems with it. Um, it, as I said, ended up with this beautiful song, but it ended up not having the impact that it had hoped to have. Uh, because of those complexities of the government-society relationship. But I do think that it's an interesting exercise in a government trying to do something different uh, in, in, in regards to its alliance with society. Um, well, I, I think the, the project um, really showed the potential of uh, bringing people together. Um, and, of course, um, despite the regional differences, um, the people who we were involving in this project uh, were all people who believed in, in, in the peace agreement, in the need of implementing the peace agreement. And as Gwen said, they had already been working on that. So they have been doing things in schools, or they have been using the radio stations to do that, or they had been uh, using the arts to do that. Uh, but they hadn't had the support of the state to try to scale it up. So the aim of this was, okay, how can we bring all this creativity together to make this happen, to have more, you know, to amplify the scale of the impact of the work that they were already doing. Um, uh, but um, even, even though they had that sim similar approach to this, we could see uh, when we started thinking about how to sort of root these projects on each one of the regions, how the differences started to, to come out. Um, and we could see, you know, how, for example, there was a very clear uh, perception uh, of uh, as a, a, a part of the group of people working that Colombia was split into two Colombians. You know, and, and this idea of two Colombians that, that one did not recognize the other, uh, the Colombia of the center of the capital cities, the Colombia of the Andes, pretty much the Colombia of the Eastern Andes, um, all the way to the Pacific. And the other Colombia was the Colombia of the, of the Amazon jungle, of the Eastern Plains that was completely, you know, ignored by policymaking in Colombia. And, and, and so the, the whole idea in the middle of all of that was, you know, can we build a bridge between the two Colombians? Could those two Colombians be an example of unity for the whole nation? And how can we do that? And that then trust came on the equation. So if we can... Um, and we borrow from from the Catholic uh, uh, 
charge this script that we call of in the I, I trust in both confio and the whole idea was I can start from approach in which I trust first instead of distrusting you know as in Colombia we have the papaya law or the ley de la papaya that the idea is you distrust the other and you run away because you think that the other is going to take advantage of you the whole idea here is I'm going to start by trusting you so we try to do that, but Gwen is, is right to say that there are complexities. One thing is to do this from civil society when each one is chipping in. Another thing is to say, okay, I'm going to do that with you, the state. But you, the state, have money, you have resources, but you have a bureaucracy and many people don't understand the times of the bureaucracy. And not only that, also the, only, the other problem, and Gwen mentioned it, was that the Colombian bureaucracy is trapped in the bureaucracy of the international community or in the times of the international community. And so many times, even though the international community was hugely committed to make these things happen, the timings were not the same timings that we had on the ground and frustration started to grow. So I think that, and and that frustration sort of, in a way, complemented and contributed to the distrust between society and the state. So it really hampered state-society relations and the face of the government, <laughs> to, to use Gwen's term, that people started to see was the same one of the past. Is the government that doesn't fulfill their promises. Is the government that always says that it's going to do something but doesn't do it. It's an inefficient monster that is sometimes better to run away from it. And unfortunately, um, you know, the, the, at the end of the day, we ended up doing the whole, the whole project. But I would say that with the, with the results of the elections and the, polit- and, and the whole political setting of what was happening at the beginning of 2018, people sort of started to leave thinking, well, actually, this state is going to be the same state or probably worse <laughs> than, than the one that we have after the elections. So I, I think, you know, that's probably the way to, to, to say that the, the song was a, a call for hope, um, but it really, as Gwen was saying, um, the complexities of, of creating different state-society relations uh, when you are coming out of war, it is a tremendous challenge. That is not something that you can do just by creating a, 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 a narratives project, but it's, it's a long-term process, which means the implementation of a structural transformations within the society structures and the connections that are built between the state and society in order to sort of try to redistribute the economic welfare and the you know, and to coexist in a in a cultural setting. Right. Yeah. And in that way, this book is is so timely because some of these lessons really can be applied. Um, and a, a question I have in regard to Darkara in the digital age, where you know we have governments, particularly this new government with Petro and Francia, who have a very specific public face, right? And there's a there's a difference between that Kara and the public officials from the smaller organizations who have been going out into the communities to try and do this pedagogy. And then, you know, the cara that a lot of Colombians have seen of the government, which has just been the military. And there's a great book about um, urban government called The State Always Arrives Last, um, 
which seems to me to apply in, in a lot of these places. So in, in, in a government situation like that of, of Petro, in which these governments are increasingly good at PR and a version of Darkara, which in English is, you know, pressing the flesh, is a sort of, I know it's, it's, it's an unpleasant expression, but it's, it's the kind of seedier side of Darkara, right? Of kind of being present in a way that people relate to and, you know, it's PR. So what's the difference? And, and can Petro's government achieve something more than Petro and Francia's face? Are they doing this pedagogy? Because as you say, it will be so important. The ELN are already rejecting being part of a generalized peace process that involves criminal groups or paramilitaries. You know, there are already tensions. Have they learned the lessons of the Santos government? Yeah, well, you know, I, I think after that explanation of Gwen, just to say it's early days, you know, of course, there are really important developments because um, that the start sort of shaping this phase. Um, the, 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 as Gwen was saying, the Minister of Defense, for example, how important is to have someone like Ivan Velasquez with this idea of total peace. What you can see is that is that Petro, and I would disagree a bit on something with Gwen, I think Santos' face of peace was not the face of peace from the very outset, say 2010. Um, it really, It really became his key element to win 2014 when he saw that the, he had an opportunity. And so the second administration of Santos was really that phase of peace, that second administration of Santos. I think that Petro is getting to power with the idea of change, but he is his whole idea of change is around the idea of total peace. And if you see what his Minister of Economy, of Hacienda says, his Minister of Defense, the Minister of Culture, the Ministry of Agriculture, the Ministry of Justice, all of them, all of them resort to the script of total peace. And so that's shaping a more coherent phase of, you know, our focus is our peace policy. Now, also, I think something that is fantastic about Gwen's book is that, she, as she was saying, is not only it was not only Santos, but it was Sergio Jaramillo, and Sergio Jaramillo as part of the face of peace of the, of the government. And we need to think about this in terms of the Petro administration. Petro has chosen Danilo Rueda as his high commissioner for peace. So what I think he's already creating is, a, is, a, is, 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 is sort of a, a complex interface that is going to have the possibility of opening really important dialogues and conversations with a particular sector of Colombian civil society a sector that I would say probably goes between the organized civil society, usually leftist, to people who are not necessarily organized but have a leftist ideology, and a conversation with those sectors of society probably is going to be easier in terms of giving, you know, in terms of showing that the state is being present and that is assuming responsibility. But I think that is going to be far more challenging when he has to explain this peace policy to the Andy or to Fedegan, because that's the face, that's, that, 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 that face is the face of the perpetrators, according to, 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 to the Andy and Fedegan. And these historical perceptions of who the Petro is or his minister of defense or Danilo Rueda, this idea that they come from a terrorist background is going to be 
a central element in the perceptions when when the government tries to bring them to the to to to, to, the, to explain the peace policy. And of course, this is going to be a really complex issue in a negotiation with the ELN, because in that negotiation, well, you're going to have this complexity in which the state is claiming to represent the whole of Colombian society, but that Colombian society is is, is split, <laughs> you know, and of course it's split with one sector who understands all this struggle for change in Colombia, another sector who feels that they have victims of that struggle. And how is the government being able to, and I think that's the, the beauty of what Santos managed to do. Santos managed to bring the left, the center, and everyone to try to find a, a middle way with the FARC. Uh, of course, the, ra- the, 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 the particular sector of the right-wing population was not very happy with it. And then that was, you know, that resulted in the loss of the referendum. But that's a different story. But I think that's where the challenges, I think, for, for the face of the Petro administration is going to be. And, and we can see, you know, some of the criticisms of the Andy, of the oil industry, of the different sectors of the Colombian economy that are powerful, organized civil society actors have, have used the state in order to, to promote their own interest that now the government will have to go and try to, 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 to say, you know what, I'm not actually, you know, I'm actually the state that you were always expecting but I'm a different state. So it is a really complex process. And I don't think, I mean, I don't think in this moment there is a pedagogy team in the Office of the High Commission for Peace. And, 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 and I think that's probably something that the, the Office of the High Commission for Peace should be thinking about that right at the moment. Totally. Yeah, that's really interesting, the the title of the song, um, because one, one of the things I really wanted to talk about that I think is at the base, sorry, I have a truck passing, nice, um, of, um, of what we're talking about here is trust, right? That's really like, at base, if you, you know, pull all of the specificities off it, we're talking about the relationship between people and state in terms of trust. Um, but I also think something we need to mention, and Andrew, I'd really like to know what your experience was during this project, is is that Colombia is a país de países, right? There's huge variation regionally. The yes-no vote on the referendum has a very specific layout on a map. There's massive class variation. So how, how extreme were the variations in response that you had during this narrative project? Yeah, and, and if I could just sort of build off that, um, because I think that, I mean, one of the reasons why I'm so pleased to be publishing my book now, um, is obviously it was a study that I did during the Santos administration, um, but, um, you know, I, I hope that it, it offers insight that can be useful today. Obviously, we're in a context in Colombia in which there is a renewed window of opportunity for peacemaking under the new Petro administration. And I think that the big lesson from the peace process with the, between Santos and the FARC is really the importance of, of, of looking at government-society relations in peace processes and how crucial that peace is, because it was the missing piece, um, really. And why it was the missing piece is, as you mentioned, Emily, Santos was 
seen initially as Uribe's um, successor candidate. He, of course, tried to move away from Uribe's um, legacy, uh, but not completely. It was uh, seen as a betrayal by many sectors of the Uribe's followers and the attitude that he took uh, in particular by suggesting to have a negotiated solution to the armed conflict, but also um, other other things that he did. And um, I think it was really difficult because there had been so many sectors of left or centre-left civil society in Colombia. And it's complicated to use these kind of generalising terms. And, you know, there, there is so much heterogeneity, but you know, broadly speaking, those organizations and communities and individuals who've been committed to trying to make peace, who've been committed to protecting human rights, um, who've been committed to trying to uh, uncover impunity and, 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 and fight for change and the structural transformations that they believe are deeply necessary to transform this um, highly unequal country. Um, those sects of society were very anti-Santos initially because they were anti-Uriwe. Um, they had been persecuted under Uribe. In in some cases, they had been threatened and killed under Uribe. And um, so they really didn't believe that there was a change. So it was very difficult for them to perceive much of a change at the beginning. When Santos finally started, you know, making making the peace process public, people slowly started to, some people, think that they might be willing to support this policy. Not Santos' government. It didn't mean they were in agreement with his economic policies or whether they, they didn't necessarily want him in charge forever. He was a member of Colombia's elites. He's, you know, the kind of person who's always governed Colombia. But they really agreed on the shared objective of ending the conflict with the FARC. And they believed that was a really important first step to reaching the possibilities for more radical transformations. Um, but this was a very slow process. Of course, it crystallized in the 2014 presidential elections in which um, Santos was elected uh, for a second term based on a very different electorate than the electorate that had elected him in 2010, which was more of a centre-right, right-wing electorate wanting continuity of Uribe's policy. In 2014, he was elected by an electorate who wanted him to finish the peace process. And that was his main message in the in the campaign. Um, uh, against Oscar Iván Zuluaga, the, center, center, the Democratic Centre candidate, was, those guys are for, are for war, I'm for peace. And so he was elected by a centre-left, sort of broad, broadly speaking, coalition. Um, and that was a turning point, I think, in his, uh, his, his ability to give face, as a, as a, to, to build his face of peace um, as a pro-peace president. I think after 2014, it really became much stronger part of his kind of public relations work, if you like, um, because he knew it, it, you know, it was part of his mandate. It had been what he'd used to win votes. And then, but but still, many sectors of society were still deeply sceptical about Santos and about the peace process throughout his, um, throughout the, the next couple of years uh, until the referendum. And so they, they, they wanted the peace agreement, but they didn't really believe in Santos. It was very hard for them to get around to trusting Santos. I also worked with the peace community. My previous book was on the peace community of San Jose de Partado, community of victims um, in, um, in, in Urabá, who are in what they call rupture with the state. And it was very interesting. They were very anti-Santos at the beginning. They saw him as just a continuity of Uribe, but with a slightly, quote unquote, prettier discourse in terms of human rights. Um, they didn't believe um, in the peace process at all when it first started. Then throughout the 2014, 2015 
period, they slowly, some of them started to take it a bit more seriously and to be a little bit supportive of it. They initially rejected three invitations to participate in the delegations of victims, which went to Havana to um, give testimony and proposals to the negotiators. And after three rejected invitations, they eventually agreed to send their legal representative in one of the in the fourth delegation. So this was, I think, a kind of good example of the slow trust building um, that happened or slowly, you know, legitimacy gaining among those skeptical sectors. But it's it's a very common problem um, in in conflict post-conflict societies and societies in which states propose to change. You see, you can see it also, and I look at it in the book. Um, in, in context in which there's a change from dictatorship to democracy, uh, civil society organisations start to maybe sort of be willing to play a role of critical friends, um, making alliances with the government. But it's very difficult. It's very challenging. And quite often they'll try it once. And then if anything goes wrong, they'll then slide back into that position of criticising because it's much easier from civil society to criticise than to um build an alliance while maintaining independence as civil society. And so that was the challenge that was not achieved in the Santos government to a sufficient degree. Um, it certainly, there was no chance of it happening in the Duque administration. I think what's going to happen now is going to be really interesting, as Andre was saying, uh, not only will it be interesting to see whether sceptical sectors um, who've been sceptical of Petro are willing to come around to collaborating with and working with him from their positions of difference, but it will also be important to see whether those who support Petro will maintain that support once the government starts doing things with which they're not so in agreement. Because, as I say, civil society is very, very used to taking the position of um, throwing stones at power. At power. And I, I don't think um, that society should ever just be a, a kind of apologist for government. They should always retain independence and, and, and be critical. Um, but I do think that there's something to be said for working together across that divide, the state society divide, on specific outcomes like a peace process. I think that's a, a, an example of an issue that really needs uh, broad scale mobilization and collaboration. And I, I, it will be interesting to see whether um, people slide back into criticizing government or whether they are able to keep their belief in petro government space, if you like whether that's the face of peace or some other kind of, maybe it's the face of change. Probably the Petro government is the face of change um, or the face of life. <laughs> Can I come in? With... <laughs> and I think they did it a bit too late. I mean, people, you're absolutely right. At the beginning of the Santos administration, that was what happened. But after the referendum, everyone understood that, you know, all all of the people, pro-peace people, were on the same boat, but now they started to get desperate because somehow the killing of social leaders came back to Colombia. So as we were developing the project and as the government was trying to do peace, was trying to do peace pedagogy, at the same time you had, you know, the numbers of former combatants of the FARC growing a bit, the numbers of killings of social leaders happening, and you had this deep polarized campaign between Duque and Petro in which, you know, the whole idea was I'm going to get to power to dismantle the peace agreement or the other one saying that he was going to do it. And then, you know, sort of that's um, that's a really, uh, I think that's the, the part that probably we need to think about now is 
how long it's going to take for people who deeply distrust Petro to, to start seeing in Petro a possibility of an important change for the country and so that they can do it as soon as possible if Petro managed to build trust in the state-society relations um, to, 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 to bring about the structural transformations that are needed because in, in two years' time, it will be too little too late for people to start thinking that there was an opportunity to bring about change. So Petro also needs to think about what is the way he's facing society. And I think that's the fantastic contribution of Gwen's book is that really calls government officials to reflect about not only the policies that they make, but how they communicate their policies to society, because that's how society is going to perceive them, and that those perceptions are anchored on historical accounts of previous processes and interactions with those political figures. Now, that's really fascinating, the idea of attempting to build trust from from kind of worse than zero in the Santos era. You know, the state had been complicit, feels like too light a word, in, in some horrible, horrible, mass, massly committed human rights violations. Um, so this project of going in and, and dar cara in a situation also where Santos was seen as uh, an heir of Uribe, right? So people who were on the political left, as you point out in your book, when there was a resistance to joining up with this project, even from people who might naturally be allied to it ideologically. Um, well, I, I think the, the project um, really showed the potential of uh, bringing people together. Um, and, of course, um, despite the regional differences, um, the people who we were involved in this project uh, were all people who believed in, in, in the peace agreement, in the need of implementing the peace agreement. And as Gwen said, they had already been working on that. So they have been doing things in schools, so they have been using the radio stations to do that, or they had been uh, using the arts to do that. Uh, but they hadn't had the support of the state to try to scale it up. So the aim of this was, okay, how can we bring all this creativity together? to make this happen, to have more, you know, to amplify the scale of the impact of the work that they were already doing. Um, uh, but um, even, even though they had that sim similar approach to this, we could see uh, when we started thinking about how to sort of root these projects on each one of the regions, how the differences started to, to come out. Um, and we could see, you know, how, for example, there was a very clear uh, perception uh, of uh, as a, a, a part of the group of people working that Colombia was split into two Colombians. You know, and, and this idea of two Colombians that, that one did not recognize the other. Uh, the Colombia of the center of the capital cities, the Colombia of the Andes, pretty much the Colombia of the Eastern Andes, um, all the way to the Pacific, and the other Colombia was the Colombia of the of the Amazon jungle, of the Eastern Plains, that was completely, you know, ignored by policymaking in Colombia, and 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 so the the whole idea in the middle of all of that was 
you know, can we build a bridge between the two Colombians? Could those two Colombians be an example of unity for the whole nation? And how can we do that? And that then trust came on the equation. So if we can, um, and we borrow from from the Catholic uh, uh, church, the script that we call of in the I, I trust, in both confio. And the whole idea was I can start from approach in which I trust first instead of distrusting. You know, as in Colombia, we have the papaya law or the ley de la papaya, that the idea is you distrust the other and you run away because you think that the other is going to take advantage of you. The whole idea here is I'm going to start by trusting you. So we try to do that. But Gwen is, is right to say that there are complexities. One thing is to do this from civil society when each one is chipping in. Another thing is to say, OK, I'm going to do that with you, the state. But you, the state, have money. You have resources. But you have a bureaucracy. And many people don't understand the times of the bureaucracy. And not only that, also, the, only, the other problem, and Gwen mentioned it, was that the Colombian bureaucracy is trapped in the bureaucracy of the international community or in the times of the international community. And so many times, even though the international community was hugely committed to make these things happen, the timings were not the same timings that we had on the ground and frustration started to grow. So I think that, and and that frustration sort of, in a way, complemented and contributed to the distrust between society and the state. So it really hampered state-society relations and the face of the government, to, to use Gwen's term, that people started to see was the same one of the past. Is the government that doesn't fulfill their promises? Is the government that always says that it's going to do something but doesn't do it? It's an inefficient monster that is sometimes better to run away from it. And unfortunately, um, you know, the, the, at the end of the day, we ended up doing the whole, the whole project. But I would say that with the, with the results of the elections and the, polit- and, and the whole political setting of what was happening at the beginning of 2018, people sort of started to leave thinking, well, actually, this state is going to be the same state or probably worse <laughs> than, than the one that we have after the elections. So I, I think, you know, that's probably the way to, to, to say that the, the song was a, a call for hope. Um, but it really, as Gwen was saying, um, the complexities of, of creating different state society relations uh, when you are coming out of war it is a tremendous challenge that is not something that you can do just by creating a, 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 a narratives project, but it's, it's a long-term process, which means the implementation of a structural transformations within the society structures and the connections that are built between the state and society in order to sort of try to redistribute the economic welfare and the, you know, and to, coexist in a in a cultural setting right yeah and in that way this book is is so timely because some of these lessons really can be applied um and a a question i have in regard to darkara in the digital age where you know we have governments particularly this new government with petro and francia who have a very specific public face right and there's a there's a difference between that kara and the public officials from the smaller organizations 
who have been going out into the communities to try and do this ped- pedagogy. And then, you know, the cara that a lot of Colombians have seen of the government, which has just been the military. And there's a great book about um, urban government called The State Always Arrives Last, um, which seems to me to apply in, in a lot of these places. So in, in, in a government situation like that of, of Petro, in which these governments are increasingly good at PR and a version of Darkara, which in English is, you know, pressing the flesh, is a sort of, I know it's, it's, it's an unpleasant expression, but it's, it's the kind of seedier side of Darkara, right? Of kind of being present in a way that people relate to and, you know, it's PR. So what's the difference? And, and can Petro's government achieve something more than Petro and Francia's face? Are they doing this pedagogy? Because as you say, it will be so important. The ELN are already rejecting being part of a generalized peace process that involves criminal groups or paramilitaries. You know, there are already tensions. Have they learned the lessons of the Santos government? I think, can I, can I, can I start with the theoretical side of Darla Cara and then maybe Andre, I would love to hear what you think about the specific question about what Petro's government can do. But I want to just put on the table that, that Darla Cara, the way I kind of conceptualize it in the book, the way I borrow from um, the ethnographic example, that's the example of the way that my interlocutors and the Office of the High Commissioner for Peace used it. It really means, it's a really interesting idiom because it combines two elements, one of which is presence, so physically being there, um, and the other one is responsibility. So assuming as your own, as an individual, the responsibility of the state, which is a complexly distributed responsibility, which includes all of historical responsibility for everything the state has ever done and everything it's doing today. Um, And not just your bit of the state, but all of the bits of the state. And I think this, this is a really complex, that's why it's so important for us as not members of the state to understand what it is to be the state and to think a little bit about what the experience of state officials is, because, um, when you're a member, a junior member of the pedagogy team of the OACP, um, and you go to Tumaco, um, as they did, but then the police go to Tumaco and in this horrendous um, counter-narcotics, uh, ostensibly counter-narcotics campaign, they massacred a load of campesinos. Um, that's the same state as the junior person who really, really wants the peace process to work from the OACP. So when that person goes and talks about the peace process to communities in Tumaco, they're faced with comments like, you are the state, what are you doing about the killings of campesinos in coca-growing region? Because that's not very peaceful. And so the complexity of assuming, look, this is, this is not my responsibility individually, it's not even my responsibility institutionally, but I belong to an inst- to a wider structure, which is the state. Um, and and within that, I am part of that structure and I do have to assume responsibility just insofar as being able to um, accept that responsibility to people's faces, which I think is the beauty of the giving face idiom in Colombia. Dar la cara means to face the music, I think is the kind of equivalent in English. Um, and so I think that there's something really powerful about being able to do that with integrity and with honesty and with sincerity. I think that 
there are people who who go and speak to communities in person and don't do that but there are people who do go and sort of honestly um accept that the state has had many uh problems historically has made many mistakes and has made many violations it has has carried out many violations of people's of people's human rights um and when people do that and they recognize that they acknowledge that responsibility personally something magic happens because that's where trust gets built because people really appreciate hearing that acknowledgement of responsibility and they also appreciate the individual human interaction so that person standing there is not just any old person it's a person with specific cultural qualities so it could be a local person or it could be a person from Bogota going to to Marco and their personal abilities of of human interaction also matter so who they are matters the messenger matters just as much as the message and some people are really much better able to build rapport and speak um naturally to to people and i think that that makes a huge difference who you send what kind of seniority they have reflects the you know importance of them um and how how you build those relationships at different levels whether that's someone who is based in the region doing work locally or whether that's someone who's flying in from Bogota to, to give a talk for the day. So I think that the whole face of the government, as I see it, is something that is constructed through lots and lots of different things, both those kind of in-person interactions and the kind of things that you're talking about, Emily, in terms of public relations and media statements. And I think Petro is definitely thinking pedagogically um, in, in a lot of his his his, his the way he's addressing the Colombian public. And of course, a lot of that today is throughout the world done on social media, through speeches on through tweets, through um, Facebook lives, etc. A lot of it is also done symbolically. I mean, I think that the, the, the who is in power is also so important to analyze, you know, the, the cultural constitution of the face of the Petro government looking at the kind of the combination of Petro and Francia and the indigenous leaders in various positions in government, but also the more Santista people, like the Minister of Economy, uh, like um, uh, like like the Minister of uh, of, of Education. Um, so there's a kind of composite culturally going on there. But I think that um, the overarching kind of the giving face is is something that I don't see as happening through those kind of mass communications. Of course, it can happen through communication online, perhaps um, through meetings online with the president or with pers- with, with ministers or with, with people like that. But I think that the overarching face is constructed through all of those different acts. But I don't think every act of communication involves giving face. I think giving face does have that kind of um, physical presence and uh, acknowledgement of responsibility. But Andre can talk about whether he thinks Petro government's learning the lesson. Well, but I was I was going to say that just quickly, Emily, if you allow me to say that you start seeing already that around the idea of total peace, of paz total, of Petro. I mean, there are people who, who cannot accept um, that uh, Petro is willing to find an alternative for paramilitary groups to, you know, sort of demobilize and enter in a process with, with the Colombian government a process for reintegration to society and having at the same time ongoing negotiations with guerrilla groups who they seem as um, clearly, you know, um, 
political and ideological groups that have a very clear agenda. Uh, um, and then uh, explaining, and, and I think now we saw how last week the total peace policy or the policy for, you know, peace as a state policy was presented to Congress. And, um, but, you know, this law needs to be, or this bill needs to be explained to society. And the, the, the big question is, is the Office of the High Commissioner for Peace at the moment thinking about the lessons learned from the pedagogy team of Santos, because Duque dismantled the whole pedagogy team as far as I know. So the question is whether today's High Commissioner for Peace is already thinking about the good things that were happening between 2012 and 2018 and how he needs to bring back some of those things to try to explain this very complex total peace policy that is being discussed today in Colombia. Absolutely. I think there's something really interesting here, just as a historical moment, given what's just happened in Chile as well, is that it's not just necessarily maybe peace pedagogy, but public policy pedagogy in general is a huge and increasing problem worldwide because information and, you know, buy-in, for want of a better word, equals legitimacy. And, you know, the strange little island that me and Gwen are from saw this in, in 2016, right? There's, I'm a big believer in direct democracy, but every time it's put into practice, we seem to have we seem to hit something everyone seems surprised by. I think that's the thing. If people vote against something in a democratic way because they're well informed and they decide that, that's fine. But the result of Brexit was a surprise to most pundits. The result of the peace referendum was a surprise to a lot of people. And the results of this Chile referendum have equally been quite a shock to a lot of onlookers. So what's going on here? How, you know, what's going on at a global level with people's buy-in to public policy and what are deemed to be progressive ideas? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, in the book, I make a lot of references to Brexit um, and to the Donald Trump election, both of which happened in the same year as the Colombian peace referendum. And, um, and the kind of the problem of how we respond to disinformation um, and I've actually been doing a couple of interviews with people in Chile um, in the last couple of weeks to share the findings from my book and kind of warn them about what what could happen. And very sadly, it did happen to a much larger percentage than than we'd expected. Um, the problem, I think, there's a lot of people studying disinformation and how it works, um, especially the global information ecosystem and the way that the uh, information ecosystem and the attention economy online um, ha have enabled disinformation spreading to be a lot more wide sort of mass large scale and and quick um, but it was always part of politics I mean telling lies is not exactly a new thing in politics and trying to convince people and trying to yeah, and, and trying to sort of, yeah, and trying to persuade people of the way that you see something is part of politics and has always been. So what exactly is new now? So I think one of the things that I'm interested in in this book is really how liberalism responds to what it perceives as post-truth populism. It perceives post-truth populism as this kind of aberration, this pathology of things of, of how things have gone wrong 
Um, and in the Colombian context, with all of the cultural um, associations of populism, people of the Santos government type tend to perceive um, emotive politics as kind of a backwards um, a backwards thing from a bygone era of warlords and populist Latin American dictators. Um, but actually, you know, this says a lot more about them than it does about the people that they're imagining. Um, it says a lot about us, about those of us who believe in information and rational explanations and truth. Um, and so the, the book is a kind of, it's an attempt to understand um, how this liberal government responded to what it perceived as a post-truth populist threat um, and the problems with the way that that perception is created and how that perception, that condescending perception creates blind spots. In particular, it creates blind spots around the fact, as I mentioned before, that you cannot change people's minds using technical, rational explanations. Um, you have, you know, people form political opinions based on emotions, politics, identities, obviously politics, sorry. People form political opinions based on emotions, history, identity, and culture, um, and psychological frameworks. And yeah, Andre's very interested in neuroscience and sort of social psychology research that delves into the, the actual kind of physical pathways and biochemical pathways by which um, we, we, we create opinions. But it, it is interesting that, in a way, this is a feature of politics that has always been the case. But in this global moment, um, with this kind of increase of tensions um, around the referenda, um, it has become more, there are more anxieties about it. And there is what I call, um, in my current research, uh, the polarization narrative, which is the narrative that we are polarized as a society, which I think is very common both in the UK and in Colombia since the referenda in 2016, both societies. Um, it's very common to hear in both places, we are more divided than ever, or we are really polarized, or the polarization is the problem with the peace process, and so on and so forth. And I think that that's, um, that that's, it's a story that we tell ourselves to describe what are actually very complex divisions that are not just created out of the referendum, but which go back historically and engage with many other pre-existing divisions. Um, such as rural-urban, socioeconomic differences, class differences, regional identity differences, etc. And um, actually, research has found that polarization claims, that is, uh, the narrative about a society being polarized, tend to, in fact, increase that sense of polarization and increase and, and create, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, because it simplifies the differences that are common to any society, and it marks out the other as an extreme and an undesirable um, uh, sort of other that, that you don't want to share your life with. That's why a lot of people that they've discovered, you know, in Brexit, in the, in, in the context of Brexit, people, there's a lot of research to show that people don't, don't want to live next door to someone who voted the opposite way to them. And they certainly don't want their, they, they certainly wouldn't date someone who voted the opposite way to them on the Brexit issue. Um, more even, in fact, than the partisan divide between Labour and Conservatives. So um, I think that, that this polarization narrative, this simplification of our divisions, is is a dangerous phenomenon, and we need to really um, 
I think learn to listen better to the other and try to find what we have in common and try to understand where that other is coming from, even if we don't necessarily agree. Uh, but also try to avoid putting the other in a box of, oh, because they voted yes to the peace agreement, they must be pro-Petra, they must be pro-abortion, they must be pro-protecting climate change, they must um, be communist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there are, there are these associations that people create in these kind of mega divisions is, I think, where things start, start getting dangerous. But, um, but I'll leave Andre to, to react to, to all of that. I, I I think um you know one of the main problems is that we we have created this idea of uh, that deliberative democracy is the solution to to politics and I I I I don't think calling for referendums is 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 a direct participation of people people vote as as you know Gwen has said and as I have I said in my book uh, you know the people vote for many different reasons and one is emotions for their affiliation to something for the sense of belonging to something to punish the president they don't care about the policy most of the times they just feel that it's a way to to, to you know and 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 so what I think and you're absolutely right Emily what we need to think about is that um, how is it that governments need to think about engaging society in drafting and creating policies that are in the benefit of society and the, the main problem that I see is that state has been captured by a by a kleptocratic elite in the UK today, in the US, um, and they are not interested in delivering public, you know, welfare. They are not interested in in in, in the poor. Uh, we we have heard it from the prime minister in the United Kingdom. They are interested in putting money back into the economy. If and and so. When, that would be the big question when I'm thinking about Colombia. Probably Petro, you hear his speeches, you know, last week, the week before, and you can see that he's interested in the poor people. He's interested in, in the welfare of society. Now, okay, brilliant. Now, for the first time, we can see, at least in the case of Colombia, there is a connection between the expectation of people poor people in Colombia or Afro-Colombian people, uh, indigenous communities, you know, and the government. And that's really good. And they have been saying that they are going to open so, uh, regional dialogues in order to draw the proposals in order to write the national development plan. And then the, the national development plan will have very clear policies. But then there is a whole sector of society who is not going to participate. It's, it's impossible to have the whole participation of society. So how are you going to do to to explain, or I, I, I not even to explain, how are you going to do to bring that sector of civil society, either through schools, universities, the business sector, to talk about it, to, 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 to you know, to, to understand why is that policy being implemented and to gain some legitimacy for that policy? Um and I think that the, the, the main challenge that um, that we are going to have is that, you know, is that, of course, we are driven into this rational logic that if we explain something, 
people can understand what we want to achieve with that. But it's not really only about explaining the A, B, and C of the things. It's, 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 it's understanding how with the other we can co-construct a feeling around a project. A sense of belonging that this is what the welfare of society is something that we we both agree from different sides of the equation and that those changes are needed. But I, I and, 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 and I think going back to Gwen's book and to wrap up, because I know that we are almost at the end of this podcast, uh, at the end of what Gwen's book shows is that the, the, the main problem of the Santos pedagogy team at the beginning, and I think even in the second part of the in, of when the implementation of the peace agreement was being about, was that they were trying to explain logically what had been agreed. And what we had done in Rodemos el Diálogo was the opposite. What we had done in Rodemos el Diálogo since the beginning of the negotiations was to say, how can we change the way how we feel about the negotiations in Havana? How can we create a different landscape about it? How can I we change the, the hatred or the anger that we feel when we see people who have committed gross human rights violations in a negotiation table who probably are going to be politicians? How do I change my emotions to understand that that's part of creating a more, a more open society and to also be able to move away from the past? So thinking about that is how governments in this age of a really radical, digital, affective revolution, you know, we need to start thinking about how can we then own our emotions and transform our emotional landscape, moving together with the government to understand policies that probably won't let us continue living the lives that some of us can live, but that is going to benefit the next generations and that we can make peace with that. Absolutely. I could talk to you guys all day but I think you have more important and possibly more interesting things to do. But thank you so much for coming on. It's been completely great to hear from both of you. Congratulations on the book and, of course, on all your amazing work. And hopefully talk to you guys soon. Always welcome on the, on the show. And as promised, to round off the show, an extract from Gwen's book, The Face of Peace, Government Pedagogy Amid Disinformation in Colombia, read by the author herself. I am the first to arrive for the Peace Pedagogy team meeting. I leave my laptop on the long table of the empty boardroom and walk over to the window, which looks out onto the Palace of Nariño, the presidential palace. Below, a routine parade is taking place for the changing of the presidential guard. The blonde brick of the palace contrasts with the red roofs of southern Bogota, stretching into the horizon in the thin light of the high Andean plain. It never ceases to amaze me, the feeling of being in a place where decisions and actions are taken that affect all of Colombian society. I come to work in downtown Bogota every day by cycling from the affluent north of the city where I and many government workers live. Most government buildings are here in the crumbling colonial centre of La Candelaria, which is full of charming cobbled streets, painted shutters and equestrian statues. But the neighbourhood is poor and dangerous at night. During the day, state officials in suits stride through the streets on their way to lunch, constantly looking out for beggars and potential thieves. I can't talk right now, I'm in the centre, they say, hurrying to end phone calls to avoid making themselves vulnerable to theft. 
I cycle around street vendors selling cigarettes and sweets under multicoloured umbrellas, homeless people sleeping on pavements, maybe drugged with bazooka, and past half-open doorways onto stone plazas with fountains in the middle, home to museums holding the cultural and historical treasures of the nation. I pass Bogota Central Square, Plaza Bolivar, filled with pigeons and tourists taking pictures of the cathedral, and arrive at the administrative department of the Presidency of the Republic, El Dapri, an ugly concrete block on the edge of La Candelaria, tucked between the colonial elegance of the Palace of Nalino. Beyond Candelaria is southern Bogota, kilometres and kilometres of impoverished urban sprawl, neighbourhoods housing the cleaning ladies and security guards who travel two hours north in the other direction every day to work for the upper classes, where the many forcibly displaced from the countryside, fleeing the violence, also live. The Dapti is on the edge of this invisible border. The Office of the High Commissioner for Peace has around 60 staff who work in open plan offices spread out over the third floor. To enter the building every day I go through security, past uniformed men with sniffer dogs outside, up stone steps, opening my bag for a man with a handheld body scanner, through a metal detector. Then I register myself and my laptop at the reception desk. The receptionists check my Colombian ID card and print out a sticker with my photo on it, which says, Contratista. The OACP informed reception that I'd be coming to the office regularly for a year, and the category they put me in, even though I'm not paid, was contractor because this is how they classified the Dapti's temporary workers, including most of my interlocutors in the peace pedagogy team, who are not really bureaucrats or career civil servants, but short-term staff brought in for specific tasks. They check the serial number on my MacBook and register in their system, and finally I go through a row of gates open with my fingerprint. Every time I leave the office, even just to have lunch, I have to check out my laptop. Once on the third floor, I usually head to the Peace Pedagogy office, a small windowless room used partly as storage for stationery and office paraphernalia. A whiteboard where weekly Wi-Fi codes are squirreled is propped up against the wall, and another wall is lined with stacked cardboard boxes containing bound editions of the final agreement to end the armed conflict and build a stable and lasting peace, the 310-page peace agreement that sought to end 50 years of conflict with the FARC. Today, however, we're having a team meeting in the boardroom. I return to the table and unpack my laptop. This episode was brought to you by Latin News, a leading source of political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean. Since 1967, their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, provides a behind-the-scenes briefing on all the week's key developments throughout the region. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at latinnews.com. And also, our other sponsor is BNB Colombia Tours, experts in custom-made travel throughout Colombia. The team at BNB Colombia Tours can provide you with fantastic private experiences, creating wonderful memories of Colombia for a lifetime. Check out the website at bnbcolombia.com, complete the free itinerary form, and tell them that Columbia Calling sent you to receive a further 5% off their already great prices. So that's bnbcolombia.com and of course latinnews.com. Thank you for everyone for listening. That's us. Farewell. And of course, check back next week. Bye-bye.
pecador habla con la luna, habla con la playa, no tiene fortuna, solo su atarraya. For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger, Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.